Hey everybody, today's episode of Shoppernomics is brought to you by the Neuromarketing Science and Business Association, the only association for those with a professional interest in neuromarketing. Visit www.nmsba.com for events and membership details. And Decision Breakers, experts in behavior-based shopper strategy, insights, and activation. Email pmcgee at decisionbreakers.com to see how they can help you win your war in-store. Welcome to Shoppernomics, the podcast for marketing and insight professionals who want to stay current on the latest understanding of consumer behavior and decision-making. My name is Phil McGee, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Marcus Husaman-Kopetsky, author of The Handbook on the Psychology of Pricing, which includes over 100 effects on persuasion and influence that every entrepreneur, marketer, and pricing manager needs to know. But before we get started, Marcus, welcome to Shoppernomics. Phil, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure and honor being on your podcast. And it's a pleasure and honor to have you here. Um, but before we uh, get too far, how about uh, in addition to my introduction, what else would you like listeners to know about you? My passion is about psychological pricing and the research around this. I'm a active researcher at a university in Germany, at the University of Paderborn. And I do academic research around the way people perceive prices, how they react up in those, and how their behavior contradicts economics predictions. So this is the fun part of this job, diving deep into contra-intuitive effects. And this is actually what excites me. And I'm happy to share what I learned and found and what excites me with you and your audience. Well, clearly you are passionate about what you do. Um, and that, that comes out you know, over and over again in your book, which, which frankly is a masterpiece. Um, I, I thoroughly value it as a handbook and, and will keep it you know, at my side at all times now. A really, really wonderful body of work. Now, in, in addition to your professional passions, I understand you also have personal passion for travel and, uh, and plan next year to take a world trip with your two young kids. That's true. We are really excited and are currently in the midst of planning our big travel. In the past, we are vivid travelers um, until our both daughters um, arrived at our family and we switched to domestic vacations next year. We are back on track and travel the world. So Thailand, wow. Australia, Costa Rica, yeah more than excited. And, and how long is this world trip going to take you? Oh, this is going to be close to insane. We take seven months <laughs> um, parental leave and go on trip. Wow. How nice must it be to be able to take that much leave and, and have something to come back to? Definitely. This is a once in a lifetime experience. Well, certainly we're all envious. So here's why I got so excited when I came across your book. Several years back, I came across a few very interesting pricing studies and thought it would be really cool if I searched the literature for other pricing studies and compiled a report on the psychology of pricing. And I told my boss about this, and not only did she love the idea, but she added it to my annual objectives. So then I set out to find the expected wealth of research 
and discovered it either didn't exist at the time or I couldn't get access to any of it. Long story short, I never completed my objective and fortunately had a very understanding boss who didn't hold me accountable for it. But you, on the other hand, uncovered lots of research on pricing and all great stuff. This book must have taken you years to put together. You are right, Phil. It took about three years and the psychology of pricing is ever-evolving and never-ending. So I try to be as comprehensive as possible, but it's an uphill battle. You will never know everything about psychology of pricing, but um, I try my best to be as comprehensive as possible. Yeah, no, it was terrific. I mean, I knew probably 20% of the effects that you wrote about, and I consider myself you know, a student of behavioral economics and, and decision-making. And so the fact that so much of it was new just really illustrates how much of an effort that you put into tracking down and reporting on some of these, these really terrific effects. So you organized your book into four parts, which, which was really helpful um, so that, you know, it helps the readers kind of wrap their minds around how these pricing effects can be classified. So the, the first part of your book was about why psychological pricing matters. Uh, the second part introduces a framework that provides structure and guidance on pricing from a business perspective, importantly. Uh, the third part discusses a wide variety of pricing designs and their psychological effects. And the fourth part deals with context variables, which influence how people perceive prices. So let's talk about each of these. Um, starting, of course, with the first one. Although it's obvious to this audience, why do you argue that psychological pricing matters? Um, I would start with why pricing actually matters. Um, pricing is, by my experience and before my academic career, I worked for a couple of years in consulting. I found that pricing is very overlooked. Although research and other studies revealed that pricing has their biggest impact on profit. So a 1% increase in price has a much higher impact on the, the bottom line than a 1% improvement in costs or in sales. Mm. So pricing per se is a very, very important thing. And if you don't get it right, your customers somehow don't like it and will immediately react to this. So pricing is a very sensitive topic um, for the customer and for the company. But why psychology in pricing? My first master's degree is in economics. And I found that the standard economic theory are good to explain macro events. So if you lower the price, demand picks up. So, right. But in a concrete situation, like a customer has to decide on the spot, do I buy this product or not? I have three different brands. Which one do I choose? I have a low-tier, mid-tier, high-end product. Which do I choose? Um, if I buy a product, how many of those buy? do I buy? Three, four, five? Do I stock up? Don't I? And economics does not have a lot of answers to this, but psychology does. Mm. And it helps to explain how customers actually behave. And Besides the better explanation how customers behave, it offers you a plethora of levers that you can actually do. Um, if you follow standard economic theory, you can either 
lower the price or raise the price. And from a psychology perspective, you can do a lot of things. You can change the color of the price. You can position it left or right. Mm -hmm. You can choose um, to to add another product version to the set that you present to your customers. You have the way to sort your assortment. So there are so many variables that you can pull. That's why psychological pricing is, is really exciting. So pricing for same matters and psychological pricing gives you options that you could actually manage. And, and I think this is, this is a new idea even for pricing professionals who, who may be aware that obviously there are, there are psychological effects of pricing, but may be unable to really leverage you know, what they know or what they could know you know, where they work because the companies are often pricing around standard models that are really based on, you know, transactions and, and historical consumer response to pricing actions and not doing a lot of testing, you know, with respect to some of the effects that we're going to talk about. But my gosh, what, what missed opportunities there are. And in fact, sometimes we could be unknowingly doing ourselves a disservice by pricing in certain ways, because these effects that otherwise could work for us, um, the way we're using them, these effects may be working against us. So I agree with you. Psychological pricing does matter, and, and, I, and I love the way that you describe that. Okay, so, so, so now let's talk about the second part of your book, where you talk about the framework, which you call the 4P model of psychological price management. Uh, can you explain this model as well as your motivation for creating it? Sure. Um, what I often found is a very confused discussion about psychological pricing. So when I talk to practitioners, uh, marketers, or even academics, students, they come up with ideas like, I read about changing your phone color to red and your sales increases or what about customers are risk averse and what is this compromise effect? What should we do? So people usually come up with an arbitrary long list of, of psychological pricing studies and they wonder what should they do. Mm -hmm. um, and my, I felt my job is to bring more clarity into this and I developed a four, the 4P model that takes a position of the of the company. So the first, the four P's are parameters, processes, phenomena, and and profit. And the first P stands for parameters and explains all the levers that you have at hand, like setting the price number, uh, choosing the font size, the color, adding product prices and shipping fees up to a bundled price, even how you sort your menu. So everything that you can do to communicate your price or design your price in a different way. So this is everything pretty much at your hands. These are the parameters from the company perspective. Then the second P is um, about processes, psychological processes. How do customers perceive what you have created, like change the color of your of your price. The plethora of psychological theories go right into this. They explain how customers process the information they see 
the process P explains that customers try to save mental energy and they apply heuristics and all their psychological theory comes into this P. So the next P is about phenomena. So customers somehow, from outside perspective, react to their psychological processes they just applied. For example, if the psychological process explains that customers apply heuristics to make decisions in order to save mental energy, this whole heuristic could be a red price is a low price. So the behavior would be the probability of buying this product is higher. So the mm-hmm. phenomenon is customer buys product. The profit P at the end quantifies the customer's behavior, buying, not buying, choosing brand A or B, buying the mid-tier versus the low-tier product, canceling the insurance contract, referring your product, so many things that customers can do. So the first P and the last P are the company perspective and the middle piece explain how customers perceive and actually react. So this model combines what what companies can do, the psychology, how customers react to this, and their business case implications for the company again. Brilliant. And, you know, in your book, you don't spend a lot of time on this. You very succinctly lay out the model, but it's a very important part of the book, you know, for the reasons that you stated. It is the thing that brings it all together, you know, the company actions and then the, the consumer response and then the end result. So it's an important model. And, and again, I think you covered it very appropriately. So now the third part, and this is um, the sexy part of the book, and this is on pricing design. And here you grouped 65 different pricing designs into eight distinct categories. I'd love to talk about all 65 of these effects, but for the sake of time, maybe we can just talk about a favorite example of yours from each of the eight categories, starting with the first pricing design type, which is the number design. Yeah, that's an excellent question on the number design. And I would like to pull out an effect that I researched on and actually found together with a colleague of the University of Dortmund, the sports team number effect. And this is my favorite effect because it involves um, soccer teams in Germany. And this is particularly fun for Germans. So what is the effect about Um, Psychological research found that if something reminds you on yourself, you like the thing or the person that reminds you on yourself. For example, if you go to a party and you find somebody whose birthday date is the same as your street number and the person reminds you on yourself, you like the person. So what does it have to do with pricing? My hypothesis was that this does not only work for yourself, but it also works for anything that you like. So if you find something that reminds you on something that you like, not necessarily yourself, but for example, your favorite soccer club, you like the thing. And the thing could be a price. So in Germany, everyone, more or less everyone, is very passionate about soccer. And in Germany, we have two soccer teams that are famous for their rivalry. So one team is called BVB09 and the other one is Schalke 04. So both clubs have a number in their logo and 
the respective fans recognize their own logo and definitely the logo of the rival team. So um, we assumed that if the price ends in 09 and you are a BVB 09 fan, you like the price much more. And if the price is 04 and you are still a, a fan of BVB 09 and your and the price reminds you on your rival team, you just hate this price. And you hate this much, you hate this price more than even a slightly higher price. So, wow. Um, and I cut out all the experiments for now, but we found that is actually the case. So, BVB 09 fans definitely like price endings of 09 more than even slightly lower prices. So, that's my favorite uh, number design effect. The second pricing design effect, um, or rather classification, are phonetic designs. Um, tell us about your favorite phonetic design example. It's, it's similar to the effect on the sports team number effect, the name letter effect. Mm -hmm. The fancy word that plays a role here is um, implicit egotism. If something reminds you on yourself, you like it a bit more. So what researchers actually found is when you have a price and you pronounce the price and it starts with the same loud as your first name, you like the price a bit more. Mm. That's really intriguing. Um, yeah, but the question is, how does it apply in the real world? And the, question, the answer to this question is, it, the, the circumstances when this kind of effect applies is in settings where a salesperson and the customer would negotiate about a price, like for example in car sales, the seller has some leeway to change the price or in the context of insurance contracts, when you have a one-on-one situation, the customer and a, a potential customer and the sales representative, they talk about insurance contracts and they can do something around rebates and change the price a bit. If this system would give their sales representative a proposed price and consider the the first loud of their prospect's name, this could actually be a case when it works. Mm. So one-on-one -on -one settings um, where prices can be highly customized and it doesn't appear confusing or, um, or somehow disturbing from a consumer perspective, then it could then it could work. So for the phonetic design effect to work, must it be audible or can it be expressed in a written form? Um, no, it needs definitely to be verbalized. Okay. Somebody has to speak it out. Got it. Um, otherwise, you just read it as a, as a visual cue and in your head you don't pronounce it. Right. This way. You just right. see an up four and it's a four you don't pronounce it right this way okay makes perfect sense all right um your next classification was visual design tell us about your favorite example there the key hypothesis and assumption is people want to conserve mental energy this fact traces back when people actually had to hunt for their food and need to save their energy as much as possible and this applies also to any decision-making. People need to wait. Do I have to think about this consciously or can I just make a quick um, decision? And if you are setting up a price promotion, for example, and you have a, 
um, regular price and a sale price, and you would like to make it as simple as possible for your customers to get this message, you need to be congruent with your visual design, which means if you have a, um, a larger regular price, make the font size larger. If you have a large discount, if you want to bring home the idea that this is a big discount, make the physical distance between both mm. congruent with the message that you want to convey. So congruency is a helpful tool to consider to um, yeah, in your visual design to bring home the idea that you want to convey. By the way, um, if you have the prices... Uh, the, the former the former larger uh, selling price you should always place it first because people have a um, easier time to subtract their lower price when it's on the right hand side versus the left hand side so uh, before 99 no it's 69 it's much easier to do the calculation as if you said now 69 formerly 99 it's uh, harder to do the calculation that it's a difference of six uh, thirty euros. Yeah, I thought that uh, I thought the visual design effects were particularly fascinating, um, and you know some of the more easier to apply designs, uh, which which made those you know a lot of fun to read and just imagine how am I put those into use, and and it actually creates a good segue into the fourth category, which is what you call sale prices and discounts. And that um, also refers to people save energy and they don't do calculation thoroughly, which also means if they see a number, they take the number by their face value. Mm -hmm. For example, if you do percentage-wise discounts you, and you decide whether to give um, a stacked discount like 25 discount first plus 20 or 40% right away. Um, in the first the setting in stacked discounts, people would just add up 25 plus 20, it's 45, it must be higher than 40. So if we have um, two offers, one has 25 plus 20% discount versus just 40, people would go with the presumably 45%. Although if you do the math, they are um, completely the same actually. Right. The real discount is 40. Right. And similar for um, free content, if you decide whether to give 35% uh, off or 50% more content, you know that both are more or less a 33, so the 50% more content is actually a 33% discount. But people would prefer the 50% more content because 50 is just bigger than 35. And 35 in this case would be actually uh, a better deal because the 50% are just 33% off. So, Use larger numbers. That's the message. I think for marketers, these effects can come in very handily and really make a difference on that the, the profit P that you talked about. From a consumer standpoint, every time you see a stacked promotion or a price, that's when you really need to hit the pause button and think about what's really going on there. If you let your decision-making be based off of your system one processing, chances are you're going to fall for it. But if you incorporate you know, system two thinking and processing, you'll stop and do the math and find out what's really going on. 
and, and marketers take advantage of the fact that people aren't going to do that. They're not going to hit the pause button and do the math. And so these can be very, very effective effects. And so kind of along those lines of multiple things going on at the same time, uh, your next group, uh, group number five, you called partitioned pricing designs. Tell us about that. In partitioned pricing designs, you decide whether you add up the prices of multiple components of your price, for example, product price and shipping fee. Should you mm. combine those? Should you um, spell them out separately? What should you do? And for partition pricing, there are a couple of variables to consider, so there's no plain answer. Actually, if people know that there's a good reason for the um, add-on fee, for example, because these are taxes also, People would prefer to uh, leave them aside because they think about the core product price and these adjacent fees as completely different um, mental accounts, so to say, and they would focus on this on the lower um, product price. But in general, people hate to pay multiple times compared to one time one one lump sum payment. So, in partition pricing. And I would just briefly touch on, on prospect theory. It explains that um, paying multiple small prices hurts much more than one big payment. General guideline, put it together, don't partition. That's the case. Yeah, you know, it's, it's what makes buying airline tickets so painful. Right, because they want to be able to advertise a low price, and so they partition their pricing so you kind of get the basic fare. But the reality is, you know, nobody pays the basic fare. You've got to pay for a bag, potentially a meal. Um, you've got the taxes and, and fees and things like that, which when you kind of see the total price eventually, it becomes very painful when you're saying, wait a minute, what happened to that advertised price that, uh, that was so appealing? So... Unfortunately, there's kind of a case where the right thing to do um, is not being done and, and who knows the negative implications of, of, of those behaviors. Okay, that's helpful. So what about, um, and, and this is in a, re a related classification of price bundling. In price bundling, you don't have one product and some... Uh, adjacent fees, but you have two different products. And the question is, should you bundle or don't? Mm -hmm. And my favorite example, there's a bit counterintuitive. Okay. It's um, The effect is called averaging categories. So what does it mean? If you sell a very expensive product like Nike running shoes and you add a very cheap, unbranded, just plain white t-shirt to it, People would see the bundle and say, okay, they prefer high-ticket item and a very low-ticket item. So on average, I'm willing to pay amount X. So, But if you ask a different customer set and just present them the Nike shoes and they don't see the cheap white T-shirt, yeah. they would also give a willingness to pay, but this is actually higher than the bundled price. And that's very, very interesting because in the first setting, you give a T-shirt for free more or less, but you are willing to pay less than for the high ticket item only. So the recommendation here is don't do this. Don't bundle cheap and expensive 
items. Um, that actually brings down your customers and willingness to pay below the, the single item that is more expensive. And this is called yeah, categorical averaging. Yeah, we certainly don't want to do that, do we? No. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, moving along to your seventh classification, price changes. On price changes, I took a favorite or a popular practice of price increases that is packaging downsizing. And what research found, and this is a good guideline for, for practitioners, if you reduce the package size, don't use only one dimension, like make it thinner. But if you do it um, across all dimensions, all three dimensions, people even more underestimate the shrinkage and package size. So for those listening from FMCD categories, this is uh, the uh, the guideline this package has along all dimensions. Customers are less sensitive to price changes, uh, less sensitive to package changes than to price changes, and they tend to underestimate smaller packages uh, or the, the smaller size of packages. And if you do it along all three, all three dimensions, it becomes even more underestimating. So um, it appears like the black magic on price psychology, but um, I just cite what research found. Yes, we always have to be concerned uh, with with the dark side of some of these effects, but um, but well stated. All right, and then your eighth and last bucket was price level and price mechanisms. Tell us about that and, and a favorite favorite example. Yeah, my favorite example is in this case the placebo effect, and that's. Really interesting. It appears that the placebo effect, or in former days, the first studies around this called is price quality inference, which is a fancy term for if you pay more, you like it more. And this appears to be pervasive for a lot of categories. Uh, interestingly, most research focuses on beverages like beer, wine, and energy drinks. And they found if the price is high, people perceive the taste as as better. Or in case of energy drinks, if people were told this is a discounted price versus this is a full price, they are actually more energized. Um, yeah, in, in, the la in the later case, they solve kind of puzzles. And those in the discounted price um, condition, they solved fewer puzzles than those who paid presumably the full price for the energy drink. And that's interesting for placebo effects. So you can you can go through the engineering to improve the quality of your product, or you can just price it higher and it sounds like you can get the same result from a consumer perception standpoint. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, of course, there are constraints and of levels of reasonability, but uh, yes, definitely. Cool. Um, so those are those were great, and and again, there are sixty five effects that kind of roll into these eight classifications. So thanks for kind of sharing some of your your favorites on there. Then the uh, the fourth section. Um, people who know me know that I often say that context is everything, and this section is the pricing context section. And here you talk about things like anchoring, uh, decoys, priming, scarcity, and the like. And I thought the um, one of the effects is called the incidental prices effect 
was particularly fascinating. I mean, you know, they're all fascinating, but this one, I, I just really made me think. Like, so here, here's where the price of an item in a category can serve as an anchor that impacts somebody's willingness to pay in an adjacent category. So it, it made me imagine a shopper, you know, walking through a grocery store and they go buy a display of cereal for $4 a box. And then, and then, you know, then they're coming and they do this on the way to my category where in my category, just for example, my average price much be, may be much lower than $4, but because they were exposed to that $4 cereal, that may make the customer more likely to trade up to a more expensive item in my category because that $4 display served as an anchor from which they, they started and then adjusted when they got to my category. And, and I thought it really shows that you know, price and value perceptions aren't always in our own control, are they? I believe that customers don't know exactly what is a good price, in particular for low-involvement products and FMCG grocery products, for example. Right. So they get into a store or on a website and they believe, hmm, I, I have a gut feeling about the right price and the gut feeling is technically called their internal reference price. And mm -hmm. But this is not a fixed value. So they whatever number they see, they somehow integrate it into this internal reference price and they compare the price that they see against this one. So um, this is purely, purely anchoring. So um, the, the recommendation here is to expose your customers to a large number and it could be um, a price of a different category. The initial experiment uh, that re refers to was a, a stand that sold a CD and the Jason stand sold a sweater. And when the price for their sweater was uh, higher, the willingness to pay for the CD was higher. So completely crazy. Mm. And um, it also works for any communication and any number in your supermarket. For example, if you have a sign there that tells buy 12 Snickers for your fridge and you somehow anchor at the 12th, although it's not even a price. Um, right. This raises um, either your willingness to pay or the number of items that you buy. So um, this is also, of course, completely unconscious. Um, and you're right, people are not particularly good to define upfront what is their price, what is the value perception, um, and they somehow decide on the spot and even unrelated information can influence their, their decision. So that's, that's, that's nicely counterintuitive. Yes. And, and that's a great example of how, you know, a marketer could use anchoring, um, to get consumers to trade up, right? You know, they might normally buy two Snickers bars, but by suggesting, you know, buy 12, um, they might buy four Snickers bars. Um, they're probably not going to buy all 12, right? But, but the average purchase quantity will go up. Um, but I, I guess the point I was making was, yes, marketers can certainly use these effects to their advantage. But at the same time, there are other contextual variables in play that are not in my control. In, in a store, you know, I've got 
my brand in my category, but what shoppers encounter before they get to my category is and, and, and what's happening there price-wise and the like is out of my control. But they may be influencing my, the way my shopper perceives my pricing by the time they get to my category. Make sense? Makes sense. Yeah. So, I, you know, I don't, there's, I'm not sure what I can do about that as a marketer, if anything, but it just, I, did, I just think it's something to be aware of that, um, you know, the, these are toys that are meant to be experimented with, but think of them, you know, holistically that, you know, I'm using these um, because they have psychological effects, but these psychological effects are, are bigger than, than, you know, my brand and my category. And, and to the extent possible, I want to, you know, control the controllables. Um, and, and now speaking of context, it, it may go without saying that these pricing effects may not work in all contexts um, or in all categories or for all shoppers. Would you agree? I totally agree. I totally agree. So, so, so in that case, how would you recommend people use your handbook? So I can imagine two kind of situations. First, you have a concrete situation. You have a new product out there. You developed a, a product or just launched your startup. You have one product, for example. You sell it for. You want to sell it for a specific price and decide whether to add shipping fee to it or sell it in a combined price. So you have concrete questions. Should I partition the price? Should I bundle the products? How should I design my um, my advertisement? What should I do? And then you can grab the book and go through the respective sections. Mm -hmm. Or you don't have any immediate decision but you don't know what you could actually decide about. And then you take the book and go through it as a source of inspiration and some effects might grab your attention and you think, hey, let's, let's play around with this variable, with this parameter, let's change this or that. And um, again, the psychology of pricing is it's not a silver bullet that solves everything, and, but it helps you to do marginal changes to your to your prices and these marginal changes might increase your bottom and uh, top line and bottom line so this is what i could imagine going through respective section if you have a immediate situation to decide about or you look for sparks of inspirations what you could actually test out and that has been proven successful in these controlled settings of academia for example yeah. And so, you know, clearly testing is important and that's, that's really going to be the answer um, to the question is, does this effect in the way that I intend to apply it work in my context, in my category for my shopper? But, you know, one of the thoughts that I had as I was going through these effects was that some of them I'm sure have stronger impact on consumer responses than others. Are there any of these that you found to be particularly effective Yes, two effects seem to work always. Hmm. This is the anchoring effect and the compromise effect. So for the um, the anchoring effect, tells you provide a, a high number and people would adjust their reference, the internal reference price, and are willing to pay a bit more. So from 
the, the original study is done by Kenman Tursky, who run who spun this fortune this fortune wheel. It gave a number, and then they asked participants whether the number of African countries in the United Nations is larger, higher, or lower than the number that the fortune wheel delivered. And if the number was high, so everybody knew that this is a random number, if the number is high, people would give a higher estimate than compared to the situation the number was low on the fortune wheel. And this also worked when people were, were educated about the anchoring effect. This also worked when people were paid for an accurate answer. And it even worked when the anchor was completely insane. Like, give the average temperature in San Francisco. Um, is the average temperature in San Francisco higher or lower than 20,000 degrees Fahrenheit? Something like this. And even if the anchor was insane, it has an effect. And research also showed if you have a reference price, like the recommended retail price or usual market price or something like this, even if people give you the answer, I don't believe this reference price, <laughs> it, still, it still had an impact on their willingness to pay. Wow. That's insane. Um, people um, are, yeah, are definitely influenced by these anchoring effects and they appear to work always. And yeah, and the second effect is the compromise effect. Yeah, also called the the, the magic of three options or golden three. If you have two options, you have more or less a dilemma. But if you have three options, people could choose, and they tend to choose the middle option. Yes, um, because they feel they have an inner critic. They have to justify this purchase too. And extreme options are always hard to defend, but the middle option is kind of safe. So if you have just two options, um, a low tier and a high tier product, um, you might have a mar a market segment shares um, biased or skewed to the low end. If you introduce a, a very high end option that, by the way, nobody buys um, or very few might buy, right. you draw more demand to the middle option because you provide people a, um, a case to justify this purchase. And there's so many examples in the literature and I think in the real world that you that can people relate to. So if you have two options, consider adding a third. That was one so, of the first studies that I came upon, which really sparked my intrigue on, on psychology and, and how it you know can, can have an effect on my my purchase decision. And I th the study was something like, you know, the best way to sell, to upsell somebody is to add that, that third option. So, you know, when you think about fast food restaurants in the United States, um, you know, it used to be that you had, you could buy small or large, right? And so because small had the lower price, people often tended to buy that, or at least a large proportion of people would buy the small. And the most effective way to trade those consumers up to a large was to let's call that a medium and then introduce a third option that we'll call large that most people won't buy, but people will, you know, decide their way toward the middle option. And, and then over time they added, you know, the extra large now, which moved people from the medium size to the large size. And, and I suppose you could just keep going and going and going. And you know, you see these people walking around with, 
with their like 32 ounce beverages, it, 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 it kind of goes back to your Snickers example, you know, by 12, it, it almost doesn't matter how extreme you go as a marketer, it just keeps working. Exactly. And in fact, the more extreme, the better. Uh, yes. It appears that it doesn't hurt. So there um, might be a, a maximum effect, but yeah. you don't diminish this maximum effect if you go more extreme with your anchor. So you cannot break anything with two high anchors, so to say. Well, this was years ago, but I remember reading, I may get my facts off a little bit, but I remember reading about Wegmans, which is a, recent, a regional grocer in the United States, a family-owned retail operator. And they introduced a, I believe it was a 100-year-old balsamic vinegar that was priced at $75. And it was so far above in terms of pricing anything else available in the category there were no expectations that they were going to sell any of this stuff, but it was going to have dramatic effects on all the other purchases in the category by, you know, having that anchor of, wow, I mean, I, I could pay $75, $10 seems like a relative bargain. Yeah. And before the introduction of the $75 example, $10 for vinegar might be a bit expensive, <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so a lot of this is, is in our control. All right. So, the book's introduction acknowledges, and this is important, you acknowledge right up front that business people, while they're interested in the research that creates these, these pricing principles, are really, at the end of the day, most interested in the so what. And so given that, and knowing what you know about pricing psychology, what advice would you give marketers who are looking to create a competitive advantage at retail through psychological pricing? I would first start with what I don't advise. Um, so I don't advise to take these 10 golden rules and everything is fine. What I advise is to make experimentation part of your culture. So conscious experimentation. So you, the company needs to have kind of sense of curiosity and knowledge that psychology might play a role and even small changes that you cannot imagine beforehand might make a difference. And you have a set of processes and methodologies to first deliver these experiments and second to, to analyze the effects. So a combination of creativity and, and methodology should, should be part of your, um, of your toolbox and your, and your DNA as a company. Yeah. I recommend ingraining the idea of experimenting with your with your pricing don't just look at what competitors are doing and and your costs but play around with everything you have in a very conscious and systematic way i think this gives you an advantage over over competitors that i often find um, relying on kind of rule of thumbs or best practice or kind of judgment um, I recently did uh, research in even the B2B setting and even there what appears to be highly professional, how prices are set is so, you cannot believe if you haven't seen it, that um, that salespeople make the prices without any, um, without any background and uh, incentive on the bottom line. And this is also the case for consumables products. You just do, you set your prices as you have 
done it before and or your predecessor did it on your job. So if you want to have a, that's a good um, message, by the way, that experimentation is not so common by my understanding that if you onboard um, experimentation and a sense of curiosity into your practices, you might become ahead of the curve. That's my recommendation. Yeah, no, really, really good advice. Um, and, and so to that point, and you may or may not know or may or may not be able or willing to answer my next question, but I'll ask it anyway. To your knowledge, are there any companies that are doing this well? Um, I guess um, from my perspective, I guess every online retailer is very proficient with this. Mm. And um, I tell this from two perspectives. First, they have the data at hand. So it's easy to get these data. So they don't have to count people entering the door. They just have traffic. They see conversions. They see all these. And second, they usually have, um, so they can do the analysis. They have data and they can do the analysis. And to apply changes to your pricing experience is really, really easy. You just have to change a website. You are not Walmart where you have to pick um, 20 representative stores across the US and change something more or less manually and then also um, check either scanner data or people observing others. How does this impact customer behavior? So online retailers definitely have an advantage because they have easy more access to data and easier access to data and they have easier access to to applying treatments to the uh, to the customers by simple a b tests for example yeah yeah a good point so online retailers they have the data they have the testing capabilities um, and and testing platform they also have the ability to personalize their offers to at, at an individual household level Right, and so um, based on your history that, that they know about you, they may uh, know um, or at least hypothesize that some of these effects are going to be more um, effective you know, in, in, to, to household A versus household B. And then they can kind of refine their testing at the household level you know, if, they, if they wanted to go that far. But, but just because they can, they, they've got these abilities, does it mean that they are? Um, you know, the question was, is anyone doing this well? Yes, online retailers have the ability to do it well, in, in theory. Are they doing it well? Um, I, I question whether any retailer can afford the PR backlash <laughs> of personalizing pricing. Honestly, that's a question yeah. of, of fairness. Um, and even if I knew that a neighbor would be willing to pay a bit more, and which also means that I pay a bit less, although I'm their beneficial of those, do I like it in principle that the company takes advantage of this? I'm the, I don't know whether people, uh, whether companies actually in, engage in household level price differentiation. Um, people just want to be treated fairly. Your point is really well taken and, and important, and you're right about the PR and potentially even legalities. So maybe I kind of gave you a bad example. It may not be you have different prices, 
but it may be different ways of expressing the same price. Or maybe in household A, you can use anchoring. In household B, you can use scarcity. As an online retailer, I think you've got the ability to, to be able to tailor your website you know, based on individual household IDs to be able to replace certain design elements with, with other things that conditionally are appropriate for the household that you're speaking to at the time. Well, certainly I can imagine you know, as we become better at AI, our algorithms will be so sophisticated, they will be able to identify the pricing effect and the execution of the pricing effect for maximum return at a household level. Probably not there today, but 10 years from now may be commonplace. Yeah, what, what I could imagine if you talk about price differentiation, so people want to be treated uh, fairly. So nobody wants to pay a higher or lower price than everyone else. But I could imagine that um, people receive kind of customized discounts. So I, for example, receive discounts on product A, B, and C, and you receive on DEF. Right. And I know this, um, but I don't feel treated because I receive a discount that you don't receive and vice versa. And if from a customer lifetime perspective, uh, the company decides to spend $100 in discounts for this customer, um, the question is on which, pro which products should I actually discount? And then you have a discussion on customized discounts and promotions. And I think this is, I don't want to call it commonplace, but you receive um, individualized offers that's possible. And in, actually, this, these are customized uh, prices and you don't feel treated because what you, yeah, as I said, what you have as an advantage is a, for your neighbor a different advantage because they just receive different discounts on different products. But overall, both customers receive discounts. Yes. So for those who want to learn more about pricing and implications for marketers, are there any books or papers you might recommend? I mean, frankly, um, with your book, people aren't gonna, are not going to need too much more. This will probably give them a lifetime of material to work with um, and, and to conduct you know, lots of tests. But um, are, are, there, are there any favorite books or resources that you've come across that you might suggest people check out? Uh, yes, I have three favorite examples. And the first one that spurred actually, that, that pushed the button to write this book. This is Priceless by William Poundstone. This is really a page turner. It's uh, written in a very exciting way. The author had exclusive interviews with some key people in this behavioral economics, psychological pricing space. This is really cool. Priceless by William Poundstone. And what I also like is Confessions of the Pricing Man by Hermann Simon. Hermann Simon is the founder of the most well-known pricing consultancy, Simon Kucher and Partners. And he wrote a book covering his, I don't know, 40 years of pricing experience and pricing projects into, into this kind of manual of war stories and examples. And this is really cool. If you mm. dive deep into pricing, if you somehow experience the stories and it feels like you joined this, this project that he delivered. And if you start freshly with pricing, I find the book How to Price Effectively by Atpal Delakia very insightful. He covers the basics of pricing and it is 
short, concise, succinct. So this is really a good book to start and you don't have to um, read through 300 pages. This is a good. <laughs> That's great. And, and who would have thought you'd come across a pricing book that is a page turner? Yeah, definitely. So, um, all right. So the book is called The Handbook on the Psychology of Pricing by Dr. Marcus Husman-Kopetsky. And, um, and Marcus, where can people find this book? They can find it on Amazon, for example, but you could find me and links to the book also on psychologyofpricing.com. And I would love to hear back and receive feedback on your pricing experience. Or if you have any questions, I always love to hear about issues that psychological pricing could help solve. And please drop me a line at uh, marcus at psychologyofpricing.com. Now, that's great. And, and I know even in your book, you invite people to bring new pricing insights to your attention. You know, and I tried to think of something to add to your very long list and, and couldn't. But to your point, this is changing daily. So I'm hoping that maybe at some point you'll come up with a, a volume two um, and, and I'll, I'll be on a lookout for that. But uh, Marcus, thank you very much. This has really been great speaking with you. Um, thanks for taking the time. It, it, just a wealth of information. Like I said, and I'll say it again, it was a masterpiece um, in putting this book together and certainly a wonderful desk reference uh, for anyone having anything to do with pricing to keep available at all times. So thank you again very much. And uh, we certainly enjoy speaking with you. Thank you very much, Phil, for having me. It was a pleasure being part of your podcast. Thank you. The pleasure was ours. All right. Thanks. Take care. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I'd like to give a special thanks to Decision Breakers for making today's episode possible. We'll see you next time on Shoppernomics.